Welcome back to the Flex Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. And on this podcast, we talk all about things to increase lean body mass or muscle and strength, and also increase your performance, improve your body comp, and do it all within a flexible framework without destroying your health in the process. Today on the podcast, I've got Dr. Dwayne Jackson, and we talk about a whole host of wide-ranging topics and we get ultra nerdy which i enjoy and it's super fun he's a wealth of tons of information i finally got to meet him in person at the real coaches summit in vegas a couple months ago now and today we get to pick his brain about some cold water immersion he worked on for his masters many years ago some of the original studies that were done more from an environmental purpose And then we talk all about different regulation systems in the body from blood pressure, blood volume, local responses. And these are useful because once you understand them, it gives you a little bit of a lens into performance. And then we wrapped up with a question about lifting. Should you lift in more of a angry state? And is that best for stress? Wanted to let you know that the Flex Diet Certification will open again coming up June 5th, 2023. Go to flexdiet.com for all the information there. And you'll be able to get on the wait list before it opens. I'm going to have some super cool bonus items for you, especially for people who are on the list there. So go to flexdiet.com. If you're looking for a complete system on how to maximize nutrition and recovery for both performance, muscle, and body composition, this is your ticket. We cover eight different interventions from protein to carbohydrates to fats to everything including NEAT, so non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, walking, exercise, sleep, micronutrition, etc. So go to flexdiet.com for all the information there. And enjoy this podcast with Dr. Dwayne Jackson. Welcome back to Flex Diet Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Dwayne Jackson. How are you doing? Doing well, Dr. Mike. How are you doing? Doing good. And you're in your garage podcast studio up there in Canada. I'm in Canada. I'm in my little studio here and on the West Coast. We're way out on Vancouver Island, as far as you can go. And, and oh, so you are on the island. I was wondering about that. Yeah, we're as far as you can go on the in the in, in the continent. Basically, if you drive, okay. if you get to the island, and then you drive to the west coast of that island, and then when you get to the Pacific, hang a left and go as far as you can to the south. I guess it would be southwest or whatever. That's our house. It's basically the last stop in Canada. It's just, if you drive out my backyard, which is called the front yard, and it's waterfront, <laughs> um, you took a boat, you could, depending what direction, you can go to Alaska, you can head out to Hawaii, oh, wow. China. Yeah, it's right there. So it's the big water. Very cool. Do they do a lot of kiteboarding or surfing or anything up there? I know they do sometimes around the Western coast in Canada places. Yeah. So surfing's massive. That's what this area is known for. It's like Malibu Beach, California was in like the late sixties, early seventies. It's just oh, okay. yeah, going. So yeah. A lot nice. of that, that's a, that's the Mecca of this area. And do you surf or do those fun things? I do. My family does more than I do just because I'm more into mountain biking, dirt biking yeah. kind of things. 
but, but I do go, I go to the beach with my family and I play around in the water with them. I wouldn't say I'm a surfer per se, but we have all the gear. Nice. Yeah. I'm down here in South Padre, Texas. So we come down here to kite surf and I have attempted two times now to learn to wing surf. I don't know if that's popular up there, but uh, yeah, it, it looks fun. I used to windsurf eons ago, so I get the idea of kiteboard and kitesurf for quite a while. But man, it's different. So for people listening, you hold on to like a physical wing and you've got a board that's got a hydrofoil underneath. So the goal is to not just be on your knees trying to fly it around as a stand up and then to get up on the hydrofoil, just holding on to this little wing thing, which is interesting. Yeah, it's neat. A bunch of my buddies when we were, when I was in university down in the States in Connecticut, they'd all go down to Hatteras, North Carolina. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. North Carolina, South Carolina, whatever it is. And they do a lot of kiteboarding out there. And man, oh man, some of those guys who, who don't really know what they're doing, that was a lot of trouble on those kites, man. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they can get themselves way, way up there and panicking and not letting go or releasing their harness or whatever it is that they have to do to get away from them. Uh, one of the earliest videos I ever saw was, God, it was probably maybe 14 years ago now. There's a guy, a professional kiteboarder they were interviewing. And they're doing this little interview in this old style camera. And then you see some guy get picked up in the background, just like floating through the image. And the camera guy is like going, holy shit, look at that. And the professional kiteboarder turns around. And this guy is probably like 80 feet in the air, just whizzing by. And he's like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, man. If it, then out here, we saw a kiteboarder the other day. They're not, it's not very popular out here just because there's like a lot of purists. There's guys mm. who live in vans and stuff to surf here. Sure. And it was funny because we saw him and I was explaining to my daughter, I said, if this guy gets out too far, he's in a lot of trouble out here because it's the big water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no protection whatsoever. No. And the lifeguards are in the out here. It's just these big, massive wild beaches with these massive surf. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah, we went to... Australia a couple of years ago, I was teaching some RPR there. I went down for my buddy Luke Lehman's wedding and just kind of toured around for two and a half weeks, which was amazing. And at the time, it was supposed to be pretty windy. And I'd already talked to people who kiteboard on the, the coast there and everything. And so I pack all my gear, haul all of our shit there, and I'm hauling around everywhere for two and a half weeks. And literally, there was no wind at all anywhere we were. We would literally just miss it. And the one day, there's this wide open beach overcast no one was around and the waves just looked angry and it was not directly offshore but a little bit side off and i was just like i don't think i'm going i don't have a good feeling about this if something happens nobody's around i've never been here before i don't know that much about the area i don't know if there's currents and the fact that there was just nobody there just made me nervous but you're also so tempted because you're like, oh, this might be the only time I've literally taken all my gear like halfway around the world and ridden in There's ways no one before. Here. And, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Same thing happened when we went to Alaska. Went up there several years ago, got to do some halibut fishing with my uncle who lives up there. Again, brought all my gear. We got all the places scoped out. We were going to do it. And it just wasn't windy at all. And Alaska, it's freaky because they can have like just massive tides of like, can't remember the name of the one place, but I think it has the largest tidal change in the world. And it was like, I think a nine foot difference. It was just bananas. Like we went out and there's a bunch of people riding there that day at high tide. And we had something else going on that day. Drove by there the next day. 
and there was nobody there and it was literally a sandbar as far as you could see you're like there's no way this is like the same place as yesterday it's just crazy it's funny because the winter time out here like we get these king tides and the actual water and logs on our beach come right up onto our like our backyard front yard whatever you want to call it but uh, this is our first experience this winter seeing it oh man because we've only been here since last june or last july and oh my god i couldn't believe the difference in height of water in the winter time and the gnarly waves in front of our house like we were getting some like Oof. 30 footers that were Ooh. like oh yeah you can there's like an island right across from our house and that's what gives us our protection like this uh, okay. earth wasn't for that island and during low tide you can get out to the island and then go off to the spot and it's so protected but you're only about 100 yards from these massive waves so they come at you looking like this wall of water and then they break up the energy all dissipates because the rocks but if you stay out there too long you're stuck on the island because the oh. water comes in and circles goes right around the island we didn't even know it was an island until this winter oh wow this island because it because <laughs> usually the water doesn't go around it like a moat so this winter the tides yeah they're probably i would say they're probably at least five feet higher than in the summertime oh wow that's a huge difference yeah it's big but i, I could be wrong too because they did some modeling out here and i only saw this modeling after we bought the house but <laughs> so we, we did the tsunami modeling because we're in a really high seismic area mm. there's just there's actually just a, like a five five richter scale earthquake just off the coast from us they happen a lot in front of our house but because the because it's so close there's not enough energy to actually cause any issues for us oh uh, okay we don't build any energy but it's, but it was, it's really cool because they showed this modeling in a one meter. So it's like just over three feet or whatever, yep. one meter raw elevation in the, in the sea level. Cause they're worried about what's going on in Alaska with the melting icebergs and stuff. Yeah. One meter rise in level here will turn this place, this whole area that I live in into a thousand islands. Like it's just going to oh. look just small islands with these houses sit on top of them. So it, it's pretty neat how these very small changes in what we consider small changes, there, there's Trillions of gallons of water, but these look like small changes. We talk about meter actually turn into several meters of damage to the area. Or you lose whole areas. So it's, yeah, it's nuts. It's fun. Yeah, even down here in South Padre, like the tide, it changes, but it's not super huge a lot. And we've noticed since coming down here, where we go, there's a little bit more erosion now than there used to be, but because it's right at water level, like you'll go out there sometimes and it's open for quite a while as you have to walk. And other times it comes up really high. There's not that much of a water difference, but because everything is so flat in that area, even a couple inches, you can have some flooding and water coming into places that it just normally never comes in, which I didn't really think about it because at first I thought, oh, there must be a huge tide change in this area. And it's no, it's only a couple inches. But once you get over that little barrier, which is small, you've got a whole inline areas that just start to flood at that point then too. Yeah. And that's what we get in the summertime here. Like our out in front of our house, our beach becomes empty during low tide. And so you got to walk out. You got to probably walk. It's so deceiving when you're up on our balcony because it looks like a small area, but you probably got to walk about a half a kilometer from mm. the edge of our beach to hit the actual white water. But when the tide's in, you, you're to walk like a foot. And you're into the water. Oh, wow. And it gets, probably gets two or three feet deep where it's completely empty during low tide. So it's pretty neat because when we bought the house, people were like, oh, so you don't actually live on the beach when they saw like low tide stuff. They're like, oh, oh. So I'm like, no, the ocean actually, there's low tide and high tide. And they're like, oh, you have that at your house. And I'm like, the whole world has it, man. When you're hammered in Jamaica on the beach, you just don't notice the beach just got way deeper than it was yeah. on in the day. 
every 12 hours or whatever it is. That's a good transition because we met at the, finally met in person at the Real Coaches Conference, which was awesome. And you had done a lot of original work or help with it about cold water immersion. A cold, cold and warm, of- yeah, cold and warm thermoregulation was my, was my thing way back when I was in my mid twenties doing my masters. Yeah. So tell us about that because cold water immersion is the end thing now, which I never thought it would be, but I guess if I could predict the trends, maybe I would make a lot more money or something. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, so what are your thoughts about, let's just say cold water and how it's related to metabolism? Yeah. The work we did actually wasn't to look at the benefits of cold water immersion. Right. We were actually looking at emergency cold water swimming for national defense. And uh, the reason why we were doing it was we was because there's a lot of, uh, on the oil rigs especially, there's a lot of military presence and police presence around those. And a lot of these guys that work on these rigs actually fall into the ocean. Yeah. And because really of bad. that, yeah, it was <laughs> horrible, eh? And so we were trying to create a model in the lab to create a mathematical model so that we could model what would happen out in the real conditions when we, when you fall into the ocean or fall into big water, clothed the whole nine yards. So we, we started out with a hot tub that we modified to have a lot more air that circulates in it. So we Mm. keep the warm layer that circulates around the body away. And we, we used that, it was 50, 50 alcohol water, and then a pile of ice to try and get it down to around zero. Wow. Um, so you were putting alcohol in there to get it colder then, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We were trying to, we were trying to get it <laughs> down, yeah, down, down colder because the problem we had when we did the actual pilot work out in the Ottawa river in the wintertime was that <laughs> yeah, the actual stuff that we modeled in the lab didn't even come close to matching it. And that was our first revelation that we had. So we ran the stuff in the lab. That was really cool. So what we would do is we'd have, we were looking at exercise before cold water immersion with and without. So basically these guys are walking around with heavy gear on, walking, basically building up metabolic heat. And then they fall into an extremely cold bath or the ocean. So the idea was to have these guys ride the bike at 70% VO2 max predetermined. We were measuring metabolism all the way through using a metabolic cart. So indirect calorimetry. And we had them sit in a thermal chamber with this hot tub in it. So we clamped a room temperature, ambient temperature and humidity, and then had this cold tub in, in this room. And so we'd have the guys ride at 70% and then get in the, and get in the cold tub. And then we'd look at the, the differences in the transients from normal, ten, nor, no, sorry, norm, normal body temperature down to like 32 degrees. So we take them down to 32. It wouldn't take too long for most. It took longer in the people that were exercised before because we had a bigger heat transient. And because it causes, because the skin has thermoreceptors in it that cause constriction, it's really actually, it actually holds onto that heat quite well in the core. Mm. So these guys were all instrumented. They had, oh God, I think we collected about 80 channels of data. So we had, oh Jesus. Yeah, 20, about 20 or so thermistors on the skin that were weighted, like you have to weight them based on their thermal inputs. So you have sensory inputs into core temperature, and then you also have the core temperature inputs from esophageal temperature. So they had an esophageal probe that we shoved up their nose and then down, <laughs> down their throat. So that was a predetermined measurement of their height so that we knew we were around the height of the aorta. And that gives us the close estimation of blood temperature. Yeah. And then we had a probe up their butt that gave us a deep tissue core temperature. So that, so the transient would be the blood temperature drops first, and then we start seeing deep tissue start to drop after. And so what we were looking for was a 32 degree esophageal temperature. That, this is Celsius or Fahrenheit? Just uh, sorry, clear. Celsius. Yeah. 
Okay, so. gotcha. That's what I figured. I just wanted to make sure people are like, why 32 and a green star? What <laughs> the hell is going on Celsius, with this loud? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk metric. <laughs> um, yeah, so 32 degrees Celsius. And uh, and we would and that that's quite cold. That's relatively heavy hyper, hy- hypothermia. And then we would have them sit and sh- undergo shivering thermogenesis after. So they'd get out of the tub and then just sit in the chair with their shorts on, shivering. And that Good was times. I think that was if you want to know, I think that was the coolest part of the experiments because first of all, after you pull anybody out of a cold water immersion, one of the things we wanted to try and figure out was how we can recover core temperature quickly because core temperature when it drops down because of cold water immersion to 32 we get this post immersion after drop that they call that we see another degree or two in drop as the body starts to distribute the blood that's really cold from the skin to the core and one of the things that was really cool about it was watching this shivering thermogenesis because this is true shivering not like, oh fuck up cold like that no but this is like Teeth chattering. In the fetal position. And if yep. you watched the lean guys, their backs and lean women, you'd see the muscle fibers cycling. Like mm. they were shivering. Like this was like deep shivering where the muscles were just basically under tetanus mm. and cycling through tetany. Wow. It looked almost like alien-like things happening in, the, in like the traps, the lats, mainly the back you could see because they'd be in the fetal position. But it was really cool because we, some of these guys and some of the girls would actually burn up to 1500 calories, bringing their temperature back up. And we modeled all of it to show that it actually was an input and worked really well. So there is a big metabolic drive, but these experiments are far, were far taken way further into, into hypothermia than what people see when they jump into a cold tub for four minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And obviously a very controlled situation. You've got professionals there who know what the hell they're doing and watching them. You've got monitors literally in their nose, up their ass, like all over their skin. Yeah. yeah all pressure's their skin. getting monitored throughout. Yeah. yeah. It's not just some bro who gets in this cold tub for way too long no. by himself. <laughs> we did. The funny part was when we did that, when we went to do the, the, turned out to be a case study because we only got an end of one. But so we went to do the field study based on what we learned in the lab. That was when the physics took over and it was really interesting to see because it was, and we actually published this, this case study it just as a, an abstract at FASEB. And so my supervisor, so I'm like, so when you say there's a bunch of experienced people around, <laughs> it was in the lab. We had that all set up. We, we had everything, AED and everything going on out in this field study. We, so we ended up getting the lock master of the Ottawa river to give us his house so that we could utilize it for a lab. And oh, wow. there's a boat launch right there. So we had a Zodiac that was given to us from national defense. It was the defense and environmental, it was called DCIEM, the defense and civil Institute of environmental medicine. And so we had this thing rigged right up. We had, so this is back, back when we had to make our own data acquisition systems. So we had Oof. our attack in there. That was like this big, thick box looking old stereo from the seventies. But what year is this for context? Yeah, so this would be 1999. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so we've got this, we got the DAC in there. We've got a portable metabolic cart. We've got all these batteries. We've had everything switched over with the DC converter to 12 volt. <laughs> it was just a nightmare. <laughs> and uh, we instrument everybody up exactly like in the lab, right? So we get, so we start with our supervisor. And so we all go out there. It's a little colder than we expected that day. It was just me, my buddy, Chris, and my supervisor, Glenn. And he's, yeah, it's a little colder. So we go out, we can't get the Zodiac even into the Ottawa River because the ice is too thick. Like it just goes on top of it. 
We're like breaking the ice up. We get it all done. We get in, we're like, we got Glenn all instrumented. He's all, he's got like kind of military fatigues on kind of thing. Just a bunch of clothes basically. And we dump him into the water and he's, this is way colder. He looks <laughs> like, this is way colder than our situation. And he said, and you can feel it because the river's flowing, right? Mm. This is the thing. So it's carrying heat away. Well, so we're going water feels any sort of transient. So much harder than just stagnant water. It's crazy how big of a difference there is. It was unbelievable. And this took what would take, let's say, I'll give you some numbers that I'm just pulling out of the top of my head, but it would yeah. an hour in the lab to achieve 32 degrees took about five or six minutes. It didn't take, it took, we, we only got a hundred yards from the shore. Wow. And at that point was when my supervisor starts singing the American national anthem for some stupid reason and <laughs> rips out his esophageal probe Ooh. and unattaches himself from the metal ball cart and throws it and starts just swimming around. But we've got him tethered with his rectal probe. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, it ends up, he goes, we were still watching his rectal temperature. Now his rectal temperature is down to 31. And we're like, we got to get him out of there, but we can't get him out. He won't, he doesn't want to get out. We, so we finally, because he's completely delirious. So we finally get oh, him yeah. We get back to the Lockmaster's house. I'm cranking the heat in the Lockmaster's house. And anyway, turns out that we end up having to like basically break down into our skibbies and hug our supervisor. <laughs> this is our first year in our master. <laughs> and he's saying, don't call an ambulance because we're going to get in so much shit. <laughs> but we can't get his core temperature up. But thank God he had that rectal probe in. Took us four and a half hours in this house. I was heating up water. Like there was like mason jars all in the clock. Oh yeah. I was up putting them all around them. But it was really neat because what came out of that was we developed a device or DCIM with the data and everything, developed a device that was made for recovery from this. And what we realized we needed to ha have it happen fast was forced hot air rebreathing. And so it's breathing. Interesting. Yeah. So it was literally like a hot air breathing device. Like sucking on a hairdryer. You want to what? Almost just like a hairdryer. It's actually more of a cabinet that they're in that has hot air in it. But it was uh, really neat because that's what came out of it. But it was quite, quite the, uh, quite the adventure. And it serves as a warning to make sure people don't get to the point where they feel weird and like the water doesn't really bother them anymore. Because yeah. There are these shifts in mental, mental acuity, I guess you could say, as you get into deep hypothermia. Yeah. And the other part when I was looking at it too was I, there was a stat and I can't remember what it was, but for significant effects of drowning and this was like i don't remember what it was but every year from plane crashes car accidents some military stuff people fall out of their boat etc and it was interesting to see the time course like some of them were like super short like in a couple minutes and then obviously it was a little bit longer and when i first looked at it i'm like what the hell is this like it can't be that much difference and you're not going to get frank hypothermia in a minute and then when I read further, I realized it was people who would go into cold water, were not used to it, would have that gas reflux where they, and their head would be in the water and they would inhale water and they would drown instantly. And it wasn't from the basically effect of the cold. It was the cold causing a gas reflux. Their head was in the wrong position or whatever too. So that to me was a little bit eye-opening because I was like, what? This doesn't make sense. And they're like, oh, yeah. So there's all different facets of things going on beyond just frank hypothermia too. When, oh, 100%. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and it's usually drowning. Hypothermia would tend to, if you get out of the water with severe deep hypothermia, you're only just starting your adventure into yeah, right? 
So there's a lot of cases where people actually make it in. They're like, holy fuck. And they can't yeah. walk and they get <laughs> in and they lay down and die of hypothermia because they go into this after drop and there's no recovery from it. And so all systems slow right down when you start getting into the 20 degrees Celsius range with your, in the twenties with, with hypothermia. So it's, yeah, it's quite, a, it was quite a, quite an adventure studying that stuff. And it was really neat because it, it led to a, actually, once we started doing the cold stuff, I realized how fickle it was, mm. was, and that's when I got into warm thermoregulation because it was, <laughs> it was a, little, a little less fickle and it was neat because it's, it's still a really neat competition between cardiovascular reflexes and thermal reflexes. And we run into this also with hy hypothermia. There's a battle between high blood pressure during that time and not dilating skin like you normally would because you have this high, really high, cold thermal input to cause constriction. Yeah. Explain that for the listeners who may not be familiar. Because at the end of the day, like you, you have to keep perfusion to your brain. So your body's trying to solve this complex battle between these kind of opposing factors. Yeah. Heat, heat stress is actually the best way to exemplify it. So after about, especially after exercise, they say we create the heat by exercising, even in a controlled environment. If you ride a cycle ergometer for 30 to 45 minutes at 70% VO2 max, you're actually going to build up a few degrees of, or at least a degree and a half or so of heat during that bout of exercise, just purely from the exercise itself. And during that time, there's a whole bunch of big shifts in blood flow to different areas of the body. So one thing we know is there's this post-exercise hypotensive period after a bout of relatively intense cardiovascular exercise. And this post-exercise hypotension has always been a question of what it is. And our hypothesis was that the hypotension is a consequence of dilated skin, skin arterials so that we can actually dissipate heat over time. And so the question we had was, does the body favor thermoregulation over cardiovascular homeostasis? And we got these people heated up with, so we suited them up, first of all, in a massive water perfused suit. And the reason why we did that was so that we can clamp skin temperature. And the reason why you have to do that is because skin temperature provides a thermal input for dilation in the brainstem. Ah, so that's so, how you detect your environment to figure out what the hell's going on. That's right. So we, we eliminate that variable as much as possible. And then we can vary the temperature of the suit to look at transients and skin blood flow and sweating. And what ends up happening is after a bout of exercise, you end up having this hypotensive period that also coincides with a elevated esophageal temperature. So, hmm. so esophageal blood temperature. Tem What's that? So blood, blood temperature? Yeah, blood temperature. Yep. So like your immediate core temperature. And what's really interesting about it is that we see about a, probably a degree change in a degree, degree and a half change in core temperature and it prevails over time. And it prevails about the same length of time as the hypotension. So we developed a bunch of experiments where we had low body positive pressure. So I, I created this device in my dad's machine shop that you could upright, sit in this thing, you could pedal an ergometer, do your exercise, and then we could turn on pressure in the low body so that basically it redistributes the blood from the legs back into the core blood volume. Yeah. So it's so like the reverse of sending someone into space. That, you want to know what? It's, it's, it's like a countermeasure that you'd have for space. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the idea was that we'd redistribute, redistribute that, that blood back to the core. So then it could be available for whatever the body has chosen 
as its recovery. So it's going to be blood pressure or is it going to be thermoregulation? And what we found was that after exercise, we get this post-exercise hyperthermia that kind of matched up the blood pressure. When we started putting low body positive pressure on and reestablishing blood pressure, then we'd see at the same time, core temperature come back down to normal. So what we came up with was that the body is serving blood pressure over thermal homeostasis in order to try and recover blood pressure. So blood pressure is the controlled variable. But when we have this massive amount of blood pooling in the legs after exercise, and we have the thermal stress where we have to try and get rid of that heat, blood pressure can't do enough to recover just because of our blood volume isn't high enough. Our legs can hold probably double our blood volume. So depending on the size of them. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, really the body itself only has a limited blood supply. And that limited blood supply, like you said, has to make sure that it services the brain. And the brain is above the heart and way above the toes. So gravity isn't helping us out there whatsoever. So cardiovascular homeostasis prevails over thermal homeostasis. And that's why when you're standing at the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon or any marathon, you the finish line, you see so many people go horizontal. And it's because blood pressure just plummets and you'll see them throwing up and all. my wife's a marathon runner. She does Boston. Got it. And, and it was really neat because I saw it in application when I was there and I thought these guys are going horizontal because their body's reestablishing blood pressure. And during that time, once they get blood pressure reestablished, then the body can start reestablishing its blood flow to the skin and get rid of that core temperature. So it's, it has a lot of application on the, these studies and really fun to do, but really complicated because of the way the skin operates. So skin blood flow has sympathetic constriction and sympathetic dilation. And that's- Really? And that's a local effect then, is that correct? Yes. And it's really interesting because we have local effects. So we can put a sweat monitors, we can put blood flow monitors stuff on the skin and just hit that one spot of skin, not, don't change any other temperature in the body whatsoever with a quick blast. We can and we, we cause sweating. We can also heat up the legs, increase core temperature and cause sweating all over the body. Hmm. So we've got local inputs and then we've got hypothalamic inputs. And, the, and that's where bl studying blood flow in skin and thermoregulation becomes super complicated and not as sexy as skeletal muscle blood flow. So that's why I did <laughs> the skeletal <laughs> blood flow. That. And it was a, it was, it, that was a fun adventure in itself too, with a bunch of kind of new findings and whatnot. So is this would explain why athletes then could literally potentially drive themselves into heat stroke because they are maintaining pressure. They're literally overriding the thermal regulatory signals. It's telling their body, this goes into Tim Noakes, central governor hypothesis or whatever hypothesis you want to use that I'm so determined I'm going to make it across this finish line. And I'm still prioritizing blood pressure. So my brain is still semi-operational despite my core temperature now becoming potentially dangerous until it hits a certain point where it's just, whoop, you, you're going down no matter what. Like you've crossed the point of no return now. Absolutely. And that's at least one of the reasons why. Yeah. Sure. That, There's a whole bunch of reasons, but. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. But from a physiological and physics perspective, 100% blood pressure is really working to try and reestablish itself. And a lot of the work I did at Yale when I was down there doing, starting my PhD, the, we looked at, we were looking at the same thing, but looking in, looking at it in countermeasures for space flight because hmm. they wear and because they're in outer space. And now all of a sudden we have a completely opposite thing, right? Because gravity yeah. longer wrecking our blood pressure and everything. Yeah, fluid shift up. 
fluid shifts and everything. And, and that was really fun because we got into studying what the actual peptide transmitters were that were releasing, that were released during heat stress to, to turn on sweating. So we looked at like histamines and all these other different things. And we end up realizing that CGRP, which is normally no susception, pain, CGRP actually is one of the ones that drive, that, that drives sweating when we increase core temperatures. And we did that through these really cool microdialysis probes that I would insert using ultrasound guidance. So you had to almost weave it through the skin. It was a spinal tap needle is all it was. Oh yeah. And then the spinal tap needle, I put like these, I made these microdialysis probes that we sterilized. I made those under the micro microscope Ooh. and we, and then we didn't put those in and then we just run a infusion pump through it at a hmm. certain rate. And then we'd collect the effluent. It's just, it was just a, a buffer at the other side. And then I'd run it through a radioactive ELISA and or a radioactive, sorry, assay. And we'd, and then we just measured, measured the levels of whatever was in the blood. We just did a panel and we found that CGRP was one of the ones that went up. But what was really cool in those studies was we were trying to tease out the inputs of parasympathetic and sympathetic nerve activity on this heat response. And because of the baroreflex response, so the baroreflex is what gains our blood pressure at certain set points. And that changes when we go to outer space. This is a really important question for us to understand is can we measure heart rate variability in these mm. astronauts and be able to predict different things? And then can we do countermeasures like exercise? Can we give like plasma, plasmapheresis, these kind of things to try and circumvent some of the issues that they have with spaceflight? And that was where we developed all these algorithms for heart rate variability because we didn't have any other way to measure it <laughs> except for through an EKG. And then actually do, you know, the mathematical transformations. So the fast Fourier transformations and whatnot, yeah. turn them into spectral data. Yeah. And that was really, I really enjoyed that. And I loved seeing that come to fruition. And like you said at the beginning, if I'd, if I had the foresight and I wasn't just such an academic at the time, I would have totally tried to patent this procedure for just fitness, right? Yeah. We end up using it like in all fitness things after that. We were using EKG and running these algorithms that we developed in MATLAB like for years after. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't get on the bandwagon early enough. Now I have to pay for the devices. I know nobody did. Like when I was doing HRV stuff, I still remember transferring to the exercise phys department. Didn't want to do any more math anymore. Did a master's in mechanical engineering, did five years of PhD student in exercise, or I'm sorry, in biomedical engineering. And even then we had the old school $10,000 of used equipment because the issue was trying to find the peak of the R wave, right? So for listeners, you have to accurately measure one R wave to the next. So imagine you have to be super accurate with how you're measuring heart rate in essence. And if it varies just a little bit and that's noise, then your whole thing is just screwed anyway. So we had to make sure we got that. And then I had to write a specific MATLAB code to transfer all of that data. And luckily at that time they had Kubios in Finland had just put out their software. So I found that and I was able to put in the RR intervals and I didn't have to write any more code to, to do all the rest of it. But yeah, even then it's like, if I would have known enough to be like, oh, someone should probably standardize these types of things. It was like each lab was doing their own. And the assumption oh. was, hey, if you've got RR intervals, you've got HRV, it must be good. like most of the peer reviews didn't know enough math and exercise phys to actually say if you were doing it correct or not. And it was just kind of like the wild west. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because we, so I had a real control freak. All actually, all of my supervisors were control freaks. I'm Shocker. Sure. <laughs> I'm a control freak, but really interesting because these guys actually would make me do all these crazy 
pilot experiments, proof of principle, N of three, those kind of things for the papers. And so we actually would do the Fourier transformations, get the, get all the peaks in the very low, very low frequency, high frequency, all these different peaks. And then we'd go in and inject phentolamine or praces in, and then see how we change them to prove that our algorithm actually worked. So yeah. we knock out parasympathetic with atropine and these kind of, <laughs> and that's what I loved about being at Yale because the human investigations committee let us do these crazy things like you'd only see in Sweden and stuff. And it was purely because we were part of this. We were, I was in the John B. Pierce laboratory, which was an environmental medicine lab from like the 1800s and had been around for so long. They just, we were allowed to do these things. And that was really where I really gained a lot of insight into the proper methods for actually understanding Fourier transformation. And it's funny because you don't see any of those data for any of these wearables now. So nope. you, you pay what, <laughs> 11 or 1200 bucks for this watch. And yet the algorithms are all secret, like they're buried. So this is what, this is something that's always bothered me. Cause like you said, of finding the peaks and doing all these things, what kind of statistical analyses do these devices run to make sure we're actually getting what we say we're getting? And that's the interesting part about it. I'm sure they go through a lot of averaging is probably what they do. Yeah. But especially the early ones now are actually pretty decent, but the early optical stuff off the wrist, if you look at that raw data, it's not clean at all. It's really messy. And you're also looking at a waveform. You're not looking at the electrical signal. So I talked to the guys at Aura when they came out early on. They actually went and used the finger location because the signal they could get was so much cleaner. And so then they poached a bunch of people from basically a lot of the heart rate stuff they did in Finland and told a bunch of their engineers and had them figure it out. Because if you looked at their raw data, you could see the waveform like super clear. And that made it a lot easier for them to figure it out. But yeah, even now, like I've, I think I've lost almost like every HRV consulting contract I've ever had an interview with. Because it almost always goes like the same way. That's hey, okay. What's your hairbrain idea for each of you? You want to I'll just do a free call to see if I'm interested in helping you out. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's basically a stupid idea. That's not going to work very well. <laughs> and here's why. And they're like, well, we already have 70 or 80% of it done and we're going to do this. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to do HRV even if it's accurate with no context at all. Like, what if they're exercising? tell them their HRV sucks and it's a horrible thing, just cross-check it against the accelerometer. There's ways around these things. They're like, oh, and then they all get mad at me and I just lose the contract anyway. And <laughs> well, back again. <laughs> it's funny because we've had, I've had people like contact me when I had my lab, like a couple of years ago, similar idea. And it's funny because generally these companies will come to you when they've already developed the product. Yep. <laughs> things like you to put your doctorate behind it and say, this is sweet. This thing's awesome. And what they're not realizing is these lifetime academics like you and myself, are, we're kind of nerds and you want to contact us at the beginning of the project because chances are there's going to be something in there that our expertise can help you with. But I tend to find, yeah, a lot of companies are already, they've already developed their product and they just want the, they want the press release, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's the nice part also about, it, I realized very early on was after I left academia was if. I have one, my own distribution network, like through a newsletter or social media or whatever you want to use. And I have money that comes from, most of my money comes from actual clients. I don't need industry money. I don't have to consult with this other whiz bang, crazy ass supplement company or wacky HRV tech, whatever. I can just walk away and be like, no, nope, not going to work. 
But I get it where if I had just graduated, I'm $100,000 in debt. I've got a house payment. I've got all these other things mounting up and someone's going to be like, we're going to give five to 10 grand a month. Just ask for your opinion. Who knows what will happen after that? It's Yeah, I probably would have said yes. As much as I want to sit here and be like, oh, I'd never do that. I don't know. I don't want to be in that position and find out what I would do. Yeah, I know it's, it, it is a, for, it is a fortunate thing to come into the fitness realm after you've developed your, your expertise, mainly, like you said, because you can pick and choose. That's why I love that. I left academia for pretty much that reason. I 16 years as a tenured medical professor in medical biophysics, absolutely loved my job, loved academia, but realized I outgrew the institution quite quickly just, just because I couldn't disseminate my knowledge without being completely chastised all the time because they want asses and seats. And when you're helping people for free, you're not getting any asses and seats. Even though I would fill my classroom twofold what I was supposed to have in it, just because I want to help people out. But yeah, so it's fun. It's funny because the academic thing definitely, (laughs) academia was was a dream for me. I I loved it all the way through until probably the last, until I became a chair of a department. Mm, Yeah, that's usually where people are like, uh oh, what did I do? <laughs> yeah, I was an undergraduate chair of medicine, and I realized I got sitting in the back back room meetings, and realized that I'm just part of a big business. And if I I might be solving all the blood flow mysteries in the world about blood pressure regulation and whatnot, but if it doesn't, if it's not going to develop a item that the university can't take fifty percent of with their with the patent, then they don't want to know about it. It's funny you mentioned about you can make your money other ways than selling your soul. So I actually funded my lab and I had a massive lab. I had a 2000 square foot lab with everything from live animal research, cell culture, a full genetics lab. I had cancer programs going on. Everything was under the, under the idea of autonomic nervous system regulation and stress. And I had about 11 or 12 people in my lab working for me. And it was funny because it was, that part was all fun until I realized that I had lots of grants, everything else, until I realized that my colleagues were just getting big grants with widgets. So being in mm-hmm. biophysics, right? Their widget would be, say, an MRI. They had no, they were engineers or they were physicists or whatever. They had no idea about physiology. That's why I was actually brought into the department. But they would just say, okay, so widget, do fatty liver disease. <laughs> and they would write a grant and they would get it because they had the spaceship enterprise, right? To study liver disease. But they were studying the same shit they were doing in the 70s with microscopes. So to me, it was like the answers weren't any different that came out. And yet these were like multi-million dollar grants because they needed multi-million to run an MRI. Oh yeah. MRIs are extremely expensive. Extremely and, expensive ass. Right? and we have, and we had, we have, we had over at Robarts Research Institute, like a dozen of them that were being used, clinical scanners that were being used for rodent studies. So interesting there too, when you have to wait for an MRI, but anyway. Point is that for me, I started to become disenchanted as I was in the back rooms talking about how things go down and realized pretty suddenly that I was part of the Wizard of Oz and that I'd finally seen the wizard. It was time to, time to not have that disenchantment because I, because I just love, I love education. So it's way, like you said, it's way better to do it outside of academia. And it's really fun because you get to help people, like the actual people on the ground. You're not just, it's not just a bunch of kids in the classroom that have paid nine grand or whatever for tuition. Yeah. And that's kind of, I still adjunct at a couple of places, primarily online. The last time I taught in person was at St. Thomas as an adjunct. And it was great. The university was awesome. Like all the instructors are great. Like most of the students were awesome. The labs had two parvo metabolic carts. We got to do great stuff. But half the students, I'm like, 
why are you paying an obscene amount of money to be here? You could not be more disinterested than any. I could be up here juggling flaming balls and you'd be like, man. And it wasn't everyone. Like, you know, half the students were pretty good and into it and were trying. And half were just I hope I there for the people. Therapy. It's, just, it's a ticket. Yeah, it was weird <laughs> where you go to a private event and I realized that, oh, all these people paid out of their own pocket to show up. And a lot of it, even the two, three, four, five hundred dollar events, like that adds up with travel, everything else. If you're a trainer, you got to take time off. So now you're not working with clients. You're not making money during that time. But those people who did all that were committed. Like they really wanted to learn. They asked better questions. And so I realized I'm like, oh, I actually like teaching in the private sector better than I did in academia. And I was like, oh. And then the last straw was that. I think even now it's becoming where I could still do some research. I could still help with papers. I knew enough people where if a buddy of mine in California, I said, hey, man, you're doing this new study. If I can get three weeks off and my wife will let me travel, could I help you with data collection? I'm like, you don't even need to pay me. As long as he knows I'm skilled in that area, he's not going to turn down like free qualified help. So even if I wanted to do it and I didn't need it for an income, I could still do the things that I wanted to do. And I got to pick what things I wanted to do instead of, oh man, I got to work on this widget or, oh God, I'd have to write a grant proposal and I'd rather carve my right eyeball out with a dull spoon than do that. <laughs> That's where the academics got mad at me because I actually used my, so I wrote for all the big magazines back, back in, back from about 98 to, I still write for them now, but they don't pay anymore till now. Back um, when they actually they, paid money. <laughs> yeah. And they paid a buck a word. So it was pretty good. So I had, yeah, most months I had 10 to 20,000 words. So yeah, it was that's good great. as a graduate student and into my first, first couple of years on the tenure track. And so what I did was I was like, okay, so these papers that I get paid $3,000 for each take me like three or four hours. Now a grant takes me three or four months and yeah. the chances of getting it are under 10%. Yeah. So I said, I'm just going to, in order for me to have time with my friends, be able to leave work at a good time and everything, I'm just going to use my writing to fund my lab. So I funded my lab with my writing and it worked out to about probably several hundred thousand dollars a year. And it was really neat because the department had no fucking clue how it was paid, <laughs> right? With the funding I had, even because I had so many students, right? I needed like millions of dollars in funding. I had hundreds of thousands. It worked out really well until people started getting jealous. It was really interesting. That's when I, it's, when you mentioned like the crowd that you're teaching to outside of the academy. Yeah. It's like really neat because you don't get jealous people paying to go to a fitness conference or a health conference that you're putting on outside right. the academy. But if you go to experimental biology <laughs> with your data, which is what we used to do, we used to go to three or four different conferences. Experimental biology was one of our bigger ones. When you go there, you're actually on the hot seat. You're not there to tell people, look at these amazing data that we've just put together. What do you guys think? It's more like, my name's uh, the guy steps up like, hi, Dwayne Jackson, University of Western Ontario. So when you did this study, we did this 10 years ago and you know, right off the bat that this is not going to be a, a conference where people are learning at. It's going to be a place. Yeah. So I used to actually ask people, I'd say, was that a question? Or are you telling me? <laughs> and it was funny how offended these guys that would go up to the microphone and tell, talk about their study to you while you're giving a talk in front of four or 500 people, how different that is. Like you said, when you're doing this outside of that club, because it is mm. a tiny little club and we think it's massive when we're in it. When you go to the real big club, the people that come to see you because they actually want to learn something, 
it's a completely different experience. And even with you and I, we're doing this talk right now. Really neat. We have two complementary areas that we've studied in. We've got lots in common. We're around the same age. Everything is in line. This wouldn't have occurred if it was two academics. Oh, no. This would be no. two men. Especially if you met at a conference like EB. <laughs> exactly. If we went to EB, this would not have happened. And what's really neat about it is like, we'd be laying out all of our dowries so you could see them. You'd be like, oh yeah, here's what I did back in 1492. And it's really interesting because I found that, and I still find it when I'm with academics, my ego flares up. Mm, yeah. a different person. I become a completely different person when I'm in an academic setting. I'm sure you probably do too, because you, you've been indoctrined. Oh and, yeah. Oh yeah. And the whole like, idea of like, oh, they're scooping me. Like that used to drive me crazy. Yeah. Someone's doing the same studies you're doing. Like they read the same freaking papers that you read, came yeah. to the same conclusion, and they're drawing a study out. They didn't get scooped. Yeah. <laughs> like you just didn't work fast enough and they got it out faster. And so now nowadays it's really nice to be outside of that kind of iron curtain because you can, like you said, you can dance in it. I have lots of friends, the same thing that I can help them out with papers and do that kind of stuff. If I want to do research, I can. And in fact, I have I have a bunch of blood lab work stuff here that I have. And I'm gonna get a metabolic card out here too. Nice. You can play around, but really at the end of the day. It, it's in academia, I found that the more complicated I made my grants, the cooler I thought it was <laughs> and showed in my, when I first jumped into the, the fitness realm, because I was just like very wordy, way too deep science with no application. And then you all of a sudden realize people just want to know the basic foundation, the 25,000 foot elevation view on this. And then the actionable because they trust you. This isn't like academia where they're like, oh, I don't trust this scientist. It's more so this person's here to help me. I'm paying them good money to help me and I'm going to learn from them. And I love that. And I do the same thing. I learned, I learned lots from that last conference that I met you at and it's the Real Coaches Summit. And it's, that's the way it should be. Learning from each other and growing. Yeah. Cause it's, and we'll talk about your certification here too. But when I did mine, like the Flex Diet Cert, that was the biggest hurdle I was problem I was trying to solve is this has to be within a set amount of hours. This isn't a college course, right? I'm covering everything from exercise to primary nutrition and recovery. So I, the first thing I did being an engineer is, okay, what are my constraints of the system? Right? So I said, okay, so for each topic, my technical lecture is only one hour. So if it's protein, dietary protein. I have one hour to convey the technical aspects that a trainer would need to know. And the carbohydrate one was the worst. I redid that thing five <laughs> times. I got it down to, I think, an hour and 10 minutes. But it would have been easier for me to do like an eight-hour lecture on carbohydrates. Yeah. Would yeah. it have been as useful to anyone else? Hell no. <laughs> it would have been like less useful. But then you've got other parts of the industry who everything is so simple, is not accurate anymore. Right. So how do you find the happy medium of, okay, here's what we need to know. Here's what we think is going on. Here's the data it's based on. So go in this direction. And then I added what I called the big picture, which is like the context of how everything fits together. I use metabolic flexibility as a theory. And then you have like your five specific action items, right? So, okay. Now, you know, the big picture about how protein fits into metabolic flexibility. And I've got your five action items for what do you actually explicitly do? But that was like the hardest part for me to figure out. Because like yourself, like I didn't want it to be, okay, just eat more protein. Okay. Everybody knows that's probably not that useful. So how do you make it useful enough, but accurate that people actually can learn from it and do the things that you want them to do, which that's, a, but it's a, it's a kind of, a, it's a fun, ever ongoing problem to try to solve too. 
I agree. And it, it's really neat too, because it's ever changing because of, like you said, we have a little bit of a broken telephone in the industry. And yeah. by the time things get filtered through several different years and mouths and posts and everything else, it's sometimes a completely different thing than it started as. So it's, it's funny, like something as simple as post-exercise protein or post-exercise feeding. It actually wasn't really a problem until people started fasting. And then all of a sudden that, that period became a thing. But the problem is that all the old data from fed workouts that stated that post-exercise, if you've already had a relatively good protein carbohydrate meal before the training, the post-exercise window really isn't that important of a thing. But it's more like a garage door. And there's a paper that actually calls it that because it depends on how fed you are before the training session. Oh, and, sure. And most trainers now say there's no such thing as a post-workout anabolic window. And it's no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying that if, if you're in a fed state, the post-exercise anabolic window is just much larger. It stays yes. for you. If you're going in fasted after 16 hours, you, you want to get some amino acids in there and some carbs, hopefully, if you eat those kind of things after your training. So it's really neat how that's one that that's just one small example, but that's an example of something that's been broken down. And you obviously are teaching it with your course. I'm teaching it in mine. And that is the, I think the, having enough science in there really makes the difference. And it's, it's like, like you, actually, it's funny because I really struggled with digestion and metabolism. Ugh. All the <laughs> substrates, right? And yeah. so what I did was, I, yeah, so carbs ended up being like, like two hours, I think. But oh, that's not bad. Yeah, it wasn't too bad because what, <laughs> what it did was I really focused. They're really holding in on what everybody hates. And that's, our, that's the actual TCA cycle and then going into the respiratory chain for aerobic stuff and then the anaerobic colysis. And what I did was I made it so that once I went through that ad, ad nauseum, I showed them that fat and, and protein can also feed into the same system. As, as long as, and then that's what, that was, it's made it easier for my protein and fat talks. But yeah. you're right. Like it's, it, you can, as an academic, I really wanted to do the whole course on just one substrate because it's, yeah. just, <laughs> it's just, I felt like, oh, I'm not giving them everything. And that's the nice part about this exercise for us as people from the academy, because it, we also grow through this. We also, oh, definitely. Right? we learn how to talk to the people that we weren't trained to talk to, right? We now learn being complicated actually goes against your business model. Even though that's what you're taught in academia to get your way through things with big work. And you also realize a lot of times that when people are defensive about their data, it's because they maybe don't understand it because a lot of times you can't get a simple answer out of them. And as you're working on these courses yourself and I'm working on mine, you realize that what you're taught in class was way convoluted and you can teach it way easier. So, yeah. And then even I struggle with like, how do I teach things that's, accurate, but may not necessarily be the way that was always taught. So for, for years I was taught like, Ooh, ATPPC is just 10 seconds. And then you've got your glycolytic pathways, which are like a couple minutes. And then you go into aerobic work. And I remember seven years ago, it was Aaron Davis had a moxie. So a nears unit on somebody's leg. So looking at local blood flow in the leg. Sticks them on a rower, has them do like a 30-second wind gate, so just as hard as you can for 30 seconds. And he's showing the monitor of oxygen in the leg muscle, and it starts at 85%. And at the end of 30 seconds, it's down to 15%. And I was like, oh, shit, this makes no sense. The monitor's got to be bad, right? It's got to be go through all this stuff, met the guy who came up with the device, blah, blah, blah. 
And what you realize is, oh, so you're always using oxygen all the time, just at different as rates. Yeah. And the simple model I was taught that I can pull out textbooks off my shelf right now when I'm at home that still regurgitated no in there. There's between the systems. It's like as soon as, the, as, soon as the alactic systems burned out, move on to anaerobic glycolysis. And then once right. you that out, move into yeah, the aerobic glycolysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're all just, I think they're of it as like overlap. dials, yep. right? You just exactly. got different dials. rates that are showing up. And then you got stuff like the glycogen shunt theory that throws a monkey wrench and all of it that a lot of academia just poo-poos and says that doesn't matter. And then they've got newer data showing that. Yeah, so it's, I always struggle with those things too. Of I don't want to just regurgitate all the stuff that I learned that I've now had to spend seven years trying to unlearn. And it wasn't 100% wrong, but I don't think the mental model I built off it did me any favors either. Yep. So it's like, how do you explain a little bit of a better mental model so that people can start from a higher level and not have to unlearn a bunch of stuff as we go through. I like it. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. One one of the one of the ones that right now in the not in academia, so not in biophysics anywhere where I came from, but in in the fitness realm, that's really messed up. I think is the control of autonomic nervous system function. People that don't realize it's a balance. Again, they think it's too. They think parasympathetic. You turn it on, we're healthy. Sympathetic. You turn it on, we're unhealthy. We're stressed out. Or if we turn it on, it's during a stressful event and therefore we need that for those stressful events. So it's just a, it's just a, like you said, a dial, all right, turn it on. They don't really realize the sympathovagal balance in a lot of cases. And what's really neat about it is a lot of people don't actually realize that our sympathetic nervous system bursts on a beat by beat basis. Now in humans, like when we measure it in the peroneal nerves, so we did some of this kind of work in the past in humans. If you measure sympathetic nerve activity in humans, it'll burst on the diastolic phase of every cardiac output, or sorry, a beat, every cardiac output, but the uh, but not every single beat. It just happens to mm. be coherent with this falling of blood pressure in a single beat. Gotcha. Uh, rodents, will beat rodents will burst a sympathetic nerve every single beat. So we measure it in our rats or in our mice. We hook onto the lumbar sympathetic chain. And you'll get a burst, you'll get a burst that's coherent with the diastolic phase. So the ah. blood pressure. So because the the sympathetic nerve, the autonomic nerve system is entrained to the barrel reflex, then automatically when blood when blood pressure falls during diastole, we are gonna see a possible burst. There's a chance for a burst of activity. The more stressed we get over time, the more of those bursts show up. So really it's a matter of how much parasympathetic nerve activity we have, but we need that sympathetic to maintain blood pressure. That's the only way that when I get up off this chair that I don't go horizontal and feel dizzy is simply because of those baroreflexes increasing the sympathetic component and withdrawing the parasympathetic component. So I teach in my, my classes in about when we take out cardiomyocytes or we take out even a heart out of a, in an animal model put it in a Petri dish with a buffer with glucose and electrolytes, it'll sit and beat for a long time. And you've probably seen this before. And you can reanimate them like the University of Minnesota does a visible heart model where you yeah. use the correct blood flow or you use a Langendorf model. There's 100%, you know, different ways right? of doing it. Yeah. yeah. And if you just take it out, denervate it, and it just sits in that thing, it's going to beat, it's going to sit there and beat at an intrinsic heart rate. And that intrinsic heart rate in humans is around 100. Yeah. And, and so automatically we know that when our heart rate's under 100, that we know that we're actually operating with more parasympathetic than sympathetic balance. And then as we get to 100, we're just withdrawing that parasympathetic nerve activity. And then after that, it's 
all sympathetic driven for heart rate. So it's funny because that's one of the things I really try to get out there with people when they're talking about autonomic nervous system control. And they say, oh, you got to turn on the parasympathetic and turn off the sympathetic. Oh, no, you're going to pass out. Sympathetic's always operating. And in fact, it's operating a lot in the muscle tissue that's active during exercise. So, and we know that. And we also know that the dilation that we see during exercise isn't neural. It's due to some sympatholytic buffering system. People say that it could be adenosine. Some people say it could be potassium, but we don't, we really don't know what that dilator is, but there's no dilating signal that's coming from a nerve to muscle. And they teach that in medicine. Do they really teach that? Yeah. yeah. So I have to unteach oh, that. Interesting. The course that I taught, my course was, it was a vanity course. So it was like on what I do and unteaching the fact that humans, dogs do, but humans don't have vagal inputs to muscle that, that operate blood vessels was probably one of my main things I had to do. I had to fight against that because it's easier to teach in medicine that there's a dilator nerve and a constrictor nerve, oh, yeah. except for it doesn't make sense when you start actually thinking about it logically. So yeah, it's really neat. The bi-directional miscommunication that can occur on both sides from the academics that say it's, this is the gospel. And then when you go in the real world, but it may not be quite the same. Yeah. On the sympathetic side, I always explain to people, I try to use the word sympathetic and stress and explain to them that stress stressors are not a bad thing. We chuck someone up into zero microgravity, like they all go to crap if they don't do any countermeasures. I think there's a story of trees without any wind at all don't even grow straight. You need those stressors. You need those inputs because just like exercise, right? Everybody knows if I want bigger biceps, I'm going to do bicep curls. I'm going to stress the muscle a little bit to have it be a positive response. But yeah, it's a, the other thing I used is if people have ever been on a beta blocker or if you've been parasympathetically overreached, which yeah, it's kind of a debatable term, but if you get super high parasympathetic tone and you can't get your sympathetic system up, you feel like utter dog shit. Your performance is not good. <laughs> Absolutely. It's it, the whole autonomic nervous system thing, I think has been, that's one of the ones that has been under, uh, under taught. So I'm glad you include that in your, in your lectures and whatnot, because it is, it's such an important fact when we're talking about exercise, because it is the thing like cardiovascular homeostasis is the essence of autonomic nervous system control during exercise. That is the, that's what it's all about. And when we talk about good stress versus bad stress and these kind of things, like what's you stress and what's distress, it really is how long that sympathetic drive prevails yep. after you're done withdrawing the stress. And so with exercise, we know greatly, right? We exercise really hard and we feel great within an hour afterward. My wife says I'm an asshole. I actually, we actually got into a little bit of an argument after my workout yesterday. I came in the house and I'm always like really charged after my workouts. I, I dig in myself into like a dark hole and I really go for it. So I, so she wanted to go for a walk and I came in yesterday. She, you look like you're mad. And I'm like, <laughs> just finished my chest workout. She's like, nah, we're not going for a walk. You look like you're really mad. And I'm like, I am. I just finished my chest workout. <laughs> so, but within 30 minutes, it goes back down to mellow Dwayne, if there's such a thing. And it's all good. But yeah, it's that prevailing, that prevailing stress, eh? Yeah. Last random question. I'll let you talk about your certs once you got going on. Do you think when you are exercising, what do you think about? And in terms of emotion, do you think it's better to have, for lack of a better explanation, some sort of 
anger or you're pissed off about something or to think that you're doing it for a higher power, greater good, love, the other end of the spectrum. I'm always curious about what people's perspective is on it. I think it's going to be like a whole podcast of philosophy too, but. Yeah, this is a neat one. So I dig myself into a dark hole. So my best workouts are when I'm the most pissed off. And that comes from, I was trained a long time ago in my, probably my 20s. And it's funny because I can't get the same workouts now without throwing on mm. and actually feeling like a biker. I don't know. It's really strange. And it's something I've really tried to overcome. But the problem is when I don't get myself in that mind state and train, I don't see the benefits that I normally do as quickly. And I also find that what I call, and I have tried the love and happiness workouts too, a lot. And it's funny because you can even see it after I'm done. I'm not as tapped. I'm not even close to mentally tapped. And when I look at the actual weights that I push during those times, they're like 50%. And I think I'm going to failure. And so for me, it's actually be, being mad. And that's why I've never, ever had training partners unless it was someone that thought the same way, but it all comes from nineties bodybuilding. It all yeah, comes. Yeah. From- that was like the way everybody trained back then, as far as Absolutely. I could tell. Like a bench press for me was, and I don't think of it this macabre anymore, but I used to think, okay, I'm going to take this bar and my biggest enemies on the ceiling. And I'm going to throw this four Oh five bench press at this person. And I wanted to go right through the roof. And I get myself into that state, turn on my music, be that guy. Didn't have smelling salts, but if I did, that's <laughs> and push that weight. And it's funny now because I still have to dig myself into a state like that in order to get to failure. And, and I've only actually, I had a kidney transplant two years ago. And with the medications I'm on, it's really hard to get yourself into that state. I'm not on beta blockers or any blood pressure meds. Those were another story when I was on those. Because you can't get in that state. You're just right. sympathetic altogether. So yeah, so I have to be in a very highly sympathetic state. I have to be, like I said, almost pissed off. And, but the problem with it, it does prevail for about half an hour afterward. Mm-hmm. Like where I'm not mad. Like I'm not mad at anybody. Yeah. Very intense. That's my way. That's my wife calls it. Very intense. But I think I'm intense most of the time. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just wondering about it because I probably 10 years ago transitioned out of Because like in college and working in the PhD, blah, 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 everything, my stress relief was to go exercise. Worked good. But then once I graduated, I was like, oh, of course I still have stress, but it's not the, it didn't feel the same. And then I started looking at the amount of injuries I had. Just luckily I didn't have too many in the gym, but from doing other stupid stuff. And I was like, oh, but it took me probably, I'd say a couple of years to sort of transition. And my hypothesis, again, who knows, is that there's less risk of injury and I can get to a similar level of performance now, but it's just more of being focused without being angry, where before the only way I could get focused was to get angry. <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. I know. It's, it, and it's funny because I have a bunch of friends that have said the same thing and I still get the de-stress feeling from it, but it takes, like I said, it takes about half hour to an hour cardiovascular is where I actually do the hippie, like smoke a doobie and go out for a nice big, long three hour hike. And we can do a lot yeah. of that here. There's a lot of doobie smoking. And there's a lot of, <laughs> in Canada. A, lot of, a lot of mushrooms too around here. But yeah. the, what's really cool. What's really cool about that is I do buffer it with long hikes. Yeah. And that's something that I really am mindful of. And like I said, I really tried in my workouts to, to get to the state that you're at. And it just, I can't get there. Now the injuries, Great point. That's one thing I am very cognizant of now 
because yes, the approach I take, I can't take the same approach. Like I have to warm up and mm. I have to warm up like really good, like 30, 40 reps for the first couple of sets before I actually get into it. And so it's, it has, it is something I really want to transition to. I would love my workouts to be peace, love, and happiness, but my walks that I do every day are. So I do get that really nice in touch with nature, stop, smell the roses. And that's something I really need to do because I'm a very charged guy and it's hard for me to relax my mind. And that I do find relaxes my mind nicely. Yeah. People watch some of my workouts with the blaring death metal. They'd probably be like, I don't know. He seems pissed off, but it just seems weird. But I, I always think of one of the guys, Ivan Moody from the Five Figure Death Punch, was telling the story of the first time his young daughter ever saw him perform. He says normally they would sometimes come on tour, normally they'd be at home. And so she got to the age where she's come to the show. So she's off on the side and he comes off after the show and his daughter's just like crying. And he's, you know, what's wrong? She's, what happened? Why are you so mad? And then he realized he's, oh my God, like she's never seen me perform. She's only seen like the complete utter opposite her entire life. So to see that was very shocking because it was so different. And then a lot of, I used to do interviews with a, I was in a radio station for a while, a lot of death metal guys. And 90% of them are just like probably the most relaxed, chill people like George Corpse Grinder Fisher from Cannibal Corpse, like one of the nicest dudes you'll ever meet. But if you see him perform, you're just like, oh my God, I don't want to meet this guy in a back alley. And you ask him, you're like, why are you so chill all the time? He's like, oh. I get to yell and scream about all sorts of crazy shit on stage for an hour. Of course I feel great after. He gets it all out. <laughs> yeah, so I thought training like, might be like that too. You just get it out of your system and be cool after that. And I honestly think that's a big part of it for me. I've always been a very aggressive guy. And and by aggressive, I don't mean like going around and picking fights with the average. Yeah. I clawed my way to the top in medicine. And my wife always pointed this out to me, right? Motocross, single sport, no real rules when you're on the track. You can do whatever you want to people on your bike and throw these 250 pound machines at each other. And so I did that for all my formative years while competing in bodybuilding, <laughs> right? So the program is pretty strong and it's really neat to actually, the psychological stuff is what my, this is my, now that I'm 50, this is the, uh, this is the stuff I'm working on now is really being able to control my own mind. Because when I was younger and I was taking 75 milligrams of ephedrine before my workout, <laughs> Holy um, shit. <laughs> That's back when it was 25 milligrams a tablet when it first came out. Five. And so back when I was doing that, there was no foot off the gas pedal. Like it was gas pedal down, straight A's in school, win bodybuilding shows, win motocross races. It was just all about just win at all costs, do this thing. And that's why I have a kidney transplant. You can only pedal to the metal it for so long. The blood pressure and everything else that comes along with it is going to take something out. So for me, yeah, this next phase of my life is really about, that's why we moved out West and everything else is about being able to harness that inner hippie. There is one in there. I know it is. Because I, I feel it every time I go for my walk. Yeah, it's really neat you ask that question because it's something actually like, like yesterday we dealt with. I literally walked to the house. It was like, whoa, <laughs> you look really mad. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just really energized. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Tell people about your certification. You've got a line of supplements. You've got some mushroom products. You got all sorts of stuff going on. So tell us about it. I've got all kinds of hands and things. Yeah. So I, I run a course with Prescript. So it's my own course. I just do it under their hospice and it's a nutrition course on body composition. Really, I just, I, it's really just a, a 
Kind of like what you said, it's a 14-week course that would cover numerous different exercise physiology courses. Anything from the progressive overload to matching to matching whatever your research or sorry, whatever your programs that you're programming are to the nutrition that you need to actually support that program. Because almost nobody does that. Yeah, it was it's weird, eh? Yeah. So that's why it, it was actually funny in the course because I spend a lot of time doing things that I that aren't nutrition related directly. And that's basically when you're designing, I don't teach them how to design any exercise programs, but I, I tell them if you're doing these types of things and I show them actually all the different metabolic pathways with overlapping aerobic and I show them how it all works. And then I explain to them, like, here's the reason why you need to consider these nutritional aspects during these different phases of training. If you're, and if you're not periodizing training, then you need to start. And if you're periodizing training, you need to periodize nutrition. So that's the front end. There's a lot of, at the very front end, I talk about all the modalities to measure body composition. Really boring. I hated it when I was an undergrad. <laughs> in that lab. Not, it sucks, but it's a body composition course. So we got to talk about those modalities at the very front end. Yeah. And then we just go through all the metabolism and digestion of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Talk about micronutrition and the importance of that because that gets lost a lot in the, the whole macro thing. And when you see other people's diets, you're like, oh, yeah, you've totally forgotten. Yeah. Chicken and rice again. Okay. That's right. Got That's it. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then we wrap it up with some kind of, for lack of a better term, like hacks, right? So it's all just about sleep, alcohol use, stress, gut health. And I basically wrap up all the stuff that I've experienced with my client base and give them pointers on how to maneuver through those things on a nutritional aspect. So it's, yeah, it's a fun course. It's like I said, 14 weeks. I'm just finishing up now. I think I got two weeks left and then we'll run it again in the fall. Nice. So that's that stuff. Yeah. And I've also got a gut health course that we, I did for them pre-recorded. So it's going to be, so look on Prescript, there'll be a gut health evergreen course on there. It's just the not live. I teach all the stuff live right now with this, but they record oh, nice. it. Most of the people watch the recordings. Yeah. It's a weekly live thing. And yeah, so I, I also formulate, so I've formulated for decades for all, a lot of big companies. I'm currently with HD Muscle. Chose to leave. I was with ATP Lab, which is a pharmaceutical grade brand here in Canada. And I decided to leave it because HD was, that's shinier. I was at ATP for four years and really didn't get much traction outside of working with pharmacists and physicians. So I wanted to dump, jump a little more into the bodybuilding realm and the fitness realm. So I went with HD Muscle. It's like I said, it's a shiny brand. It's a young brand. Very good brand though. High quality formulations. I do all the education and formulating for them. And I own a company called Vibe Mushrooms. I'm a co-founder with another friend. And we've had that going since almost a year now. And we do functional mushroom extracts under my strict guidance on how to produce them. And this is a problem in the mushroom industry right now. Oh, yeah. Is that it's just, it's just, it's wild west and you can just grab dried mushrooms. Hey, there's mushroom dust in there. Hey, Mr. Exactly. <laughs> and so what we, and it's 35% beta glucans. And you're like, okay, so it's got the same polysaccharides that every fucking mushroom has in it for crying out loud. So what I did was I did a lot of research on the traditional Chinese medicine pharmacopoeia. And I use their, cause it's medicine actually in China and Japan, it's adjunct yeah. medicine for cancers and blood pressure and all kinds of stuff. So I, so I basically took, we have, we have four, five offerings. So we have lion's mane, red reishi, turkey tail and cordyceps. And then we have one that's a blend of the four, an equal blend of the four. And what I did was for each unique extract, I made sure that we followed the Chinese pharmacopoeia. So it became like a medicine in China. And by doing so, I realized that there's not a lot of companies doing this because it's oh, expensive no. to test. 
Yes. And very expensive for to get them to actually do these extractions, like 15 to one extractions, these kind of things. Nonetheless, we have the top pharmaceutical grade product on the market right now. Excellent stuff. We've just ordered our second big round of orders from our supplier and everything else. So I'm pretty nice. that. Yeah. And it's been going well. It's a, it's a work in progress because it's a startup, but it's, it's been going quite well. So I've got those things going on. And then I've got my, my, my own stuff with my training and my teaching and stuff. My, my training stuff, I mainly work with, I work with a lot of really ridiculously special cases. By special cases, I'll say that they range from 800 pound people losing weight through to transplant recipients. So I've got seven or eight transplant recipients of all different kinds on my roster, right through to, and this is a real special case, but celebrities. And the reason why I say they're special cases is because it's a completely different world to work with these guys, not oh, yeah. just because they're celebrities, because their work, it just sucks. Their work environment yeah. really sucks. Yeah. They're overworked, like you wouldn't believe, right? Yeah. So, Especially a lot of movie uh, yeah, actors, so, set stuff. It's just, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's its own world. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So I've got some pretty, pretty high level guys in that end. So it's the training stuff's been really fun for me because generally people send me people that they can't get their goals with. And so I like that because it allows me to use my inner scientist. And that kind of gives me that, that feeling that you get when you have to dig into the literature and really try to find a way to get around things. I love it. Yeah, that's about it for me. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for all your time and sharing all your expertise and how I recommend people check out all the stuff you've got going on there. And yeah, always wonderful to chat with you again. Really appreciate it. Likewise, Doc. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate your time too. Oh, thank you. And we'll talk to you very soon. Talk soon, brother. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Really appreciate it. A huge thanks to Dr. Jackson for coming on here. I know he's a super busy man. He's running multiple different things. So make sure to check out all of his links below from the mushroom company to his supplement line to his course that he has with Prescript all on nutrition and digestion. I haven't gone through his course yet, but just having talked to him for a while, I'm sure it is epic. And this podcast is brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. It will open again June 5th, 2023. Go to flexdiet.com for all of the information. If you're looking for a complete system to maximize primarily nutrition and recovery for both yourself or if you're a coach or a client, go to flexdiet.com. That's exactly what we cover. I go over the big picture using the concepts of flexible dieting and metabolic flexibility. We've got an in-depth lecture that's limited, as I mentioned here in the podcast, to about only one hour. Yes, the carbohydrate one did run over a little bit, but this is useful because you can learn all the technical aspects of each of the interventions, from protein to micronutrition to sleep to much more, only within about an hour's worth of time. And then part three for each one is five specific action items. So you'll always know exactly what do you need to do in order to put this into practice? Because it's not just the acquisition of knowledge that is the best, it is applied knowledge. So I wanted to set up a system that had the big picture, so you understand context, you understand the details from a little bit more of the research side, and we go through and explain all the geeky terms, so you don't need to look all of them up or anything like that. And we have the application so that you know exactly what you would need to do in each individual case. So go to flexdiet.com, 
for all the information there, you can hop on the waitlist. It'll be open for one week, starting June 5th, 2023. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Jackson for all of his information. Make sure to check out all of his info there and his great stuff he has on Instagram. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. As always, really appreciate it. If you have just a couple seconds, please leave us a review for whatever stars you feel are appropriate. And if you can take the time to write out a few sentences, that goes a long way to help us with the little algorithms to move the show up. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. Talk to you all next week. I have a good mind to go home. You had a good mind, you wouldn't be here in the first place.